Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Jose Sanchez to talk about his book, Architecture for the Commons, Participatory Systems in the Age of Platforms. Jose is an architect, game designer, and associate professor at the University of Michigan, and he is also the director of the Plethora Project. Uh, Jose, thank you for being here and talking with me today, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we begin, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I'm I'm an architect. Um, I'm a Chilean architect, actually. Um, I'm working in the U.S. I've been associated with academia for the last uh, six to seven years. Uh, I have been in LA for quite some time, but I'm actually based in Detroit right now, uh, working for the University of Michigan, where I uh, am an associate professor there. And I do research that connects architecture with uh, video game design. Uh, very interesting. And as a video gamer myself, I'd, lo- I'd love to dive into that a little later into the book when it's kind of segues a little easier. But so kind of to start us right off, you know, the very beginning of the book kind of goes into a section that uh, means a lot to me as a practicing architect. And that is the idea that most of architectural research and education is kind of based around this improbable client with infinite money and time. I was wondering if you could kind of go into that a little more. Sure. Um, I think that the, it's it's not news for any architect, especially once you graduate out of school, uh, that there's a lot of kind of uh, free labor that seems to be expected from us. Um, I remember graduating by the 2008 uh, crisis in London and there was so much uh, opportunities, but at the same time, you know, the competition and the amount of salaries and the kind of amount for free internships and, and uh, enterprises that that are not remunerated um, was something that I, I certainly felt critical about. Um, at the same time, you start analyzing and understanding that uh, architectural competitions really operate under that premise, right? You actually get thousands of people, like it happened with the Google Guggenheim Helsinki competition, where thousands of people submit their proposals, but very uh, very few get remunerated, if any, maybe perhaps one. So, the idea of like winner takes all economics uh, seems to be at play very much in the way we we kind of um, allocate resources for a particular project. So, so that kind of really trickles down through the way in which we we deal with uh, the profession, uh, especially at the at the first years of after after education. But I do think that it it kind of permeates the culture uh, in general. Absolutely. And, you know, and the book doesn't exactly have an emphasis on this, but you have a very good point that the average architectural intern is designing a building that they would never, ever be able to afford and experience themselves. And so you have this kind of call of action, and we can kind of go into that a little more, the idea about reclaiming almost the middle, we'll call it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I... I do that reflection. I do talk about how we architects, I mean, I don't have anything against IKEA and furniture. I mean, most of us seem to, seems to be the model that we can afford the most in regards to the salaries, the kind of uh, wage 
that we, we, we get. Um, but we don't seem to have that mentality of what would it be the supply chain, what would be the kind of the logistics to achieve a good quality design that is also affordable by, let's say, you know, a, a middle class salary like our own, right? Uh, we seem to be associating architectural quality with a form of commission and a form of, um, you know, what we would perhaps some people would call architectural progress or an avant-garde that, that seems incredibly unreachable, at least for our own kind of economic reality. Absolutely. And you had actually just mentioned the idea of kind of trickle down the theory that, you know, the trickle down economics could help out in the architectural world. But, you know, moving on in there, the book, you do discuss the similarities between trickle down and ephemeralization. I don't know if I say that right. Right. And the idea that that actual idea kind of fails. And if you could explain that to us, that'd be great. Sure. So the idea of ephemeralization was, uh, I think, a beautiful concept presented by, by Mr. Fuller. And he was describing how technology and the progress that we are achieving every year over technology would allow, you know, in the case of architecture, become thinner and lighter and perhaps kind of slowly disappear. And we see that being the case with like things like digital networks, right? Um, the problem is that um, the, promise be- the premise behind that concept has to do with eventually we would be able to do more for a lot of people. We would we would be able to create prosperity because we're going to be able to use uh, more efficiently the resources that we have available to us. And and that that's the point in which I think that we have failed at it. I mean, it seems that the femoralization concept has indeed take effect, but it has only been uh, for the enrichment of very few people. So we do see a system that is highly unequal today and where, you know, the optimization of uh, product development and, and systems allows some to get a much larger profit as opposed to really spread uh, the prosperity that comes from achieving such optimizations. Absolutely. And, you know, you had mentioned this idea of failing to scale. You know, the book does have a heavy emphasis on the idea of parametric design. And so kind of a two-point question here. First of all, if we could go into a little more detail on the idea of parametricism, but also you have brought up the point that for the most part, at least if I understood it correctly, this parametric design doesn't exactly isn't exactly scaling to increase the domain of most designers, whereas that's kind of how it's being touted as its biggest ability. Yeah, well, I mean, I do have a, a kind of a personal history here with, uh, I, I was, you know, I study in the AA under someone like Patrick Schumacher. So I kind of uh, been seeing the, the growth and development of the parametric agenda to the point of what Patrick has discussed as a parametricism, as a style. Um, and it's been always interesting to, to hear his perspective and, and debate his own perspective. Um, but I think that there's a kind of a, a different approach that we can see. And like we can see that, in a way, one of the concepts of parametricism, it, it declares itself as an epochal style, declares itself as, as a kind of a, the, the kind of architecture that serves best in the form of economics that we, we have in place. And while that me might be correct, it also defines a how it operates in relation to kind of neoliberal practices. That's because uh, parametricism is able to achieve a great optimization of form and a great diversity of form, but uh, by disrupting a supply chain. Uh, what I talk about is the relationship between parametricism and vertical integration, which is the process in which, um, you know, uh, the whole vertical supply chain is actually appropriated by, a, by an industry. And that has a um, very clear correlation with the, what I call it, the coalescence of parts, right? When we stop thinking of parts of, to kind of define a system or an assembly or tectonics, right, in architecture, and we're able to achieve a larger uh, 
element or, or, or a piece of architecture that is achieved, let's say, through a 3D printing method or, or, or a form that is able to coalesce those parts in a, in a larger way. So uh, I do see, a, and the, the book kind of makes the case that vertical integration is it's tightly uh, correlated to, to the practices of parametricism, even if that was intended or not. Absolutely. And so kind of jumping ahead, you had mentioned vertical integration and you use the example, you know, of Elon Musk's facility. They produce a lot of their parts in-house, which cuts down a lot of cost, lead times, etc. And you have the kind of the, again, the example that hits home, the idea that uh, a project with a certain type of wall might actually need seven contractors to deal with concrete, steel, brick, plaster, paint, molding. And so kind of to elaborate on the idea that, you know, by vertically integrating and the use of parametricism, you could increase, and I think you actually discussed kind of the dream of a single fabricator building a building. Right. I mean, I think that this this seems to be the case already with, with some of the 3D printed ambitions. I think that the, the, the project for vertically integrating the home has been a long going uh, project and maybe a failed project uh, since Conrad Waxman and like Walter Gropius with the General Panel Corporation and a few other initiatives that have tried to do what Henry Ford did for the automobile um, in a way for housing. Uh, and we keep seeing that those attempts uh, with companies like Katera and, and again, when, when things like uh, 3D printing technologies, when they talk about disruption, I think that that word is quite interesting to me because disruption almost literally suggests like a jump or a leap on this kind of uh, in the supply chain or kind of a shortening or a altering that supply chain in a, in, a, in a radical way. So you are concentrating power and capital in the hands of a few suppliers. And, you know, you could say, well, that's all good because we, we managed to create kind of cheaper and more affordable products. Well, the problem, I think, and, and the book explores the kind of social consequence of kind of uh, reducing who has the capacity to fabricate, the capacity to produce, uh, and the capacity to create diverse forms of value in architecture. Uh, absolutely. And so that kind of, again, now we go backwards a little bit. You had an ex- you didn't exactly say it, but you keep hinting at the idea that you talk about in the book, and that is the asymmetrical growth of our economy. And you then go to break it down that there's kind of three factors leading to that, extractivism, externalities, and enclosures. And I know these are a very big part of the book, so I was wondering if you could take us through each one in a little more detail. Right. So, um, yeah, the three E's. Uh, so externalities, uh, in a way, I, I, I obviously want to kind of correlate some of the, the challenges that we see in the economy um, in regards to the appropriation of value or the extraction of value from sources that potentially could be considered illegitimate. Right. Um, so the idea of externalities uh, talks about how companies are able to uh, not allocate value to, let's say, if, if they're going to just pollute a river, let's say, there's kind of a, a reduction of costs associated with that process. And in a way, they can get away with that um, if there's no right regulation. So there's there's different mechanisms by which value is uh, obtained or, or reduced, uh, but it has a kind of a larger kind of societal impact. Uh, and those things obviously um, have to be considered. Um, the, perhaps out of the three, the, the concept of enclosures is the one that I'm, I'm most interested in as well, um, because enclosure suggests that uh, we are kind of altering the property rights or the kind of the relationship to property to something that prior had been per- perhaps considered as a common. And that's where I kind of really start tying the notion of the commons in the book. Um, and I think that that's kind of uh, something that I really 
in a way, there was a, a lot of ideas of how to make the book um, really try to address the commons. And I think that the, the problem of property and the problem of enclosure really start suggesting how um, what we consider, let's say, a public or something that belongs to a collective eventually gets transferred and in this case get um, privatized by the enclosure of the commons, right? I think that that comes also, the interest that I have in the commons comes from a, from a very personal kind of a trajectory, also being a Chilean architect and seeing how the um, constitution of in Chile in 1980 uh, of Augusto Pinochet, something that has recently been, uh, you know, there's a big kind of uh, social uh, change happening in Chile where we the Chilean community has decided to kind of move to kind of change the constitution of uh, 1980. That was basically a, a form of deregulation and a form of a privatization of what would otherwise be a, a public offering or the opportunity for the public sector to participate in the economy. So there's been substantial changes since the 80s and people like Naomi Klein had talked about how, how this is uh, could be considered the, the shock doctrine, the kind of the, the rise of neoliberal economics which perhaps started with experimental test beds like Chile uh, and then taken to the US and the UK. Um, but they are kind of at the center of, of the argument is kind of looking at neoliberal economics as the enclosure of the commons and how do we recover in a way some of the, the rights and some of the opportunities that the commons have to offer, especially at the moment of self-provision. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the analysis to the commons is very helpful. You, you had brought up, you know, kind of neoliberalism. And something I think that a lot of viewers can relate to is you had mentioned, and I'll ask you to elaborate a little more, the idea that neoliberalism has increased this, what we call the gig economy, and it has its own, you know, pros and cons. And so I was wondering if you could uh, explain that to us a little further. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to uh, kind of position myself, you know, as someone that uh, has fundamentally uh, been a political analyst in a way. Uh, I do want to kind of connect it to architecture. And I think that um, when we look at, you know, initiatives like Uber um, or where kind of gig workers or like the shared economy, as has been called, um, I somehow correlated to a form of value extraction um, in a way workers do not own their own uh, their own enterprise, right? The, the the company is actually owned by, in this case, a small group of people in Silicon Valley, right? So uh, the parallels are not literal, but there's kind of a reflection about how architecture, and I think that there's been interesting books discussing this subject, which is um, how can architecture create a certain form of autonomy or a certain form of uh, emancipatory practice? Uh, and it has to do with our relation with clients. It has to do with our relation with, uh, with the with capital in a way, right? And as I mentioned before, the the issue of the free competition, participating on free commissions, it's something that um, I heavily advocate not to to participate on. And 
And I really kind of work with uh, students discussing and kind of trying to figure out what are the avenues for architects to kind of break free, if you want, um, from some of the the most obvious practices as soon as you kind of come out of uh, of school. Like, how do you how do you engage with uh, with the economy at the moment of of seeing all these different avenues, right? Um, I do think that there's potential avenues that uh, not does not create a, an eternal competition between uh, each of our peers, but perhaps could accumulate knowledge and it could accumulate um, you know uh, resources for architecture so that we could actually lead for a more prosperous and um, uh, and in a way create some architectures that deal with solidarity in some way, right? But for that, there needs to be some coordination. Absolutely, and so. While it's a different concept, that kind of brings me to a, kind of a big part of the book, and that is the idea, the use of, you know, network or as you call it, platform. You know, you bring up a good point that of all the changes in the world, you know, inter- regarding the Internet and free access to knowledge, architecture has not really changed since the introduction for the most part. Right. So I that was kind of an interesting conversation that I had with a few colleagues at some point, and we were discussing regards of um, how architecture always seems to be like several years behind some of the biggest <laughs> innovations that are Absolutely. happening. And, and today we have people in architecture doing research on, on artificial intelligence, machine learning. And, and the conversation came to be like, well, have we ever really addressed the internet? Like, I mean, the internet has been with us for quite some time. And of course, there is, you know, the propagation of knowledge through the internet is, is, is quite remarkable. But in the way in which uh, we engage architecture as such, um, we are still engaging with a, with an offline software for the most part. Obviously, there are exceptions. Uh, there seems to be very little kind of deal coordination, uh, especially among, um, let's say, the, within the boundaries of a company, you might have a structure for that to happen. But we have uh, not able to achieve larger forms of organization um, which in other cases, let's say in the case of Wikipedia or, or kind of larger digital platforms, have been able to kind of orchestrate or, or coordinate users to create a body of knowledge that is at the service of uh, society at large, right? Um, so I think that the project of the platform, it's, um, as I mentioned in the book, is a double-edged sword um, because you have platforms like Facebook as well, because the, the, the power of a platform could be uh, incredibly, you know, uh, empowering the democracy of users, but at the same time, it could be an incredible challenge for uh, forms of governance and forms of surveillance, right? Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so, again, you know, as a, as a video gamer myself, as soon as you had mentioned that architecture, for the most part, does not have the platform that maybe other industries do, probably the best example of an architectural platform is not one that was intended that, and that's the video, video games, whether it's Minecraft or Maybe you could tell us about Blockhood a little more. Right. But to me, you know, these are those are the most successful platforms, even though that probably initially is just not. I mean, they're video games. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it seems like uh, participating uh, in the creation of architecture, it's a, it's a complex, uh, as we know, like being an architect, uh, it's a complex discipline. There's so many layers to consider. And I think that video games are particularly well-equipped to discuss a, a, a series of, architectural concerns um, that are often, you know, not so well manifested, Some, for instance, in something like Instagram, right? Uh, in Instagram, we kind of celebrate the culture of the image, and there's so much you can say within, you know, uh, a post or even Twitter and some other formats, right? But video games are really kind of um, become, in, in some cases, um, 
projects that have to do with systems, that have to do with, uh, you know, the production of form, uh, with the labor of form, the association of knowledge, and even uh, the, cons- the the limits that you have to that. For instance, in, in the recent project that I've been working on, which is called Commonhood, uh, you could think of the production of architecture through a scarcity, meaning that if you don't have access to machines, if you don't have access to tools or materials, you might not be able to achieve some of the forms that you might be dreaming of, right? We seem to be working constantly in a medium of complete abundance. You never run out of lines. You never run out of, you know, a geometry within your kind of modeling environment. That that, but that that's kind of a, a little bit of a kind of a world that has been uh, presented to you, or a bias that has been presented by the software, or a vision, or an image that uh, perhaps has kind of deep implications in the way we think architecture could effectively, you know, be instantiated in the world. Um, so I do think that the narrative that games bring and, and some of the, the, the opportunities that, that game design offers, at least in my research, uh, tries to kind of create worlds and scenarios in which uh, we change the, uh, the ground rules in a way for how architecture emerges. Absolutely. And so this is going a little off topic from the book, but, you know, a lot of guests that come on, they always have other projects they work on. I can honestly say I've never spoken to an architect that also dove into game design. And so you hinted at a little bit, but I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit on how that, how was that, you know, the process? Right. Is it, is, I mean, I imagine it's, I think most architects work in the 3D BIM modeling world. And so they probably assume that it's pretty similar to game design, but I have to imagine it's probably not even close. Right. So I, um, I just want to mention in regards to game design and the book <laughs> briefly, that uh, I kind of purposely try to keep to the minimum the kind of correlation with some of my own personal projects. Um, just because I do think that some of the ideas, I mean, your brain seems to move faster than your hands in a way. And, and everything that I'm doing with my practice sometimes have shortcomings of the ideas or where, where in a way the ideas are going, right? So um, some of the ideas of the book are already manifested in some of the projects, but, but many, very much the book becomes a beacon for where, where I think I would like to go with my, with my work in, in game design and architecture. But yeah, the game design um, has been, you know, I guess that like, like many young people, like there was some interest of game design, but when I became an architect, I, I really kind of uh, thought that there was no connection between the two. Coming, growing up from Chile, I never thought that game design was a career option. Um, so it wasn't only until I started kind of learning about programming and how to kind of create generative design. I was studying the AA and their program called the Architectural Design uh, the uh, AADRL, the Design Research Laboratory. And there we were actually learning how to program and how to create architectures through coding. There was something there for me that was missing, though. Um, Once we shift architecture to think about form through programming, there was almost like an incapacity to, to design in a hybrid format where you would just maybe take some decisions with your hands and some of the decisions would be taken by an algorithm. It would be either you code or either you model. Either you have a top-down approach or a kind of a bottom-down approach from coding. And I felt like that kind of, um, you know, dialectic was kind of uh, erroneous. There was perhaps a lot being lost by not using our architectural experience and intuition. Uh, but the, And there was also a lot lost if you don't didn't use some form of computation where, where algorithms were taking part or at least some part in the design process. So for me, the result of that equation of, of hybrid form uh, takes the form of a video game uh, in the sense that you are kind of a free player that has your own 
agency in a world, but the world, it's an algorithmic world that has been designed by rules and constraints, right? So I, I kind of found, uh, in a way, a bit of a framework in games where I could discuss computation, but also participation, which is very much opening a software to a larger pool of audience uh, and, and those uh, to have great agency on, on what they want to create for themselves as opposed to be a form of uh, crowdsourcing. Um, I, I started kind of diving into that and I think that there was a... Um, an interesting marriage of the ideas of, of social participation, computation, and, and and being able to create a hybrid model for the modeling of architecture as well. Absolutely. As I said, I think that's very interesting. I personally would love to see more architects involved with video games for some obvious reasons. Um, and so, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I have to mention that it's been a challenge. I do th- see that the, the game industry... Is a, it's a deeply problematic industry. It's, it, it, it lacks diversity and it's a kind of heavily biased towards a particular form of a commercial outcome. So um, I, like you, I think that there should be more and hopefully more diverse voices within the game industry. It's a medium that is slowly maturing, but it's maybe maturing too slowly compared to, to the kind of accelerated growth that it has had over more mainstream mediums. So... Um, I'm always kind of interested to kind of discuss with students and, and colleagues about the the expansion of of, very, of, of the field uh, towards yeah more more diverse topics. Absolutely, and I agree wholeheartedly. And so, before we kind of move to the end here, you know, I was wondering if you could tell the audience what have you been working on since the book has come out. Right. So um, the book took several years. In a way, it's, it's an enterprise that, as I mentioned, had been laying out the ground for for what I hope uh, becomes my research for, for several years to come as well. And as you mentioned, I, I, I released one video game prior to the book, which was called Blockhood, was my first video game, which really was kind of a, a concept about can architecture have, uh, use video games as a medium. And that game had a, you know, a small amount of success that allowed me to start thinking a little bit more ambitiously uh, or a lar- of a larger project, which is the current project that I've been working on for the past three years as well, uh, which is Commonhood. It's the game that I just mentioned. It's, um, it hasn't been released. Uh, it's going to be released next year. Uh, we, you know, the Plethora project is a, it's an architecture studio, but uh, it basically operates as a, as a game design studio as well. The main objective of the game is, is really to aim and create an interface between game design and architecture. Um, and when people ask me, it's like, is there a real outcome out of the architecture doing in the game? For sure. I mean, that's that's the main objective. It's really to kind of link those two. It's a first-person game. Um, the game kind of creates a lot of constraints. It, it invites you to kind of design a fabrication facility, um, but it has a it is situated in a world uh, where there is um, you are a squatter in, a, in a, an abandoned factory. So there's a narrative about dispossession about. Uh, how the economy has left uh, certain people behind, and it's about the creation of a prosperity within a neighborhood. So, the, how do you go from you know uh, uh, being at the edge of homelessness to to a kind of a self sufficient economy in a way? Uh, even though there's a, there's many challenges to achieve such a such a model, right? So, um, the game has a narrative aspect, but it also kind of uh, allows for players to kind of collaborate uh, online to to come up with recipes or, or, or blueprints for for creating such objectives. Well, I'm, like I said, I'm sold. I missed Blockhood, but I'll definitely be be there when Commonhood comes out. 
Sounds great. So I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Brian. It's been it's been great. I appreciate it. The it's been great here too. The book is Architecture for the Commons: Participatory Systems in the Age of Platforms. And to everyone listening, thank you and have a great day. Thank you, Brian.